right, well, uh, while they're heading out, the rest of us, let's go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 12 this morning. Matthew 12, which is on uh, 971 uh, in the Bible in the pew in front of you. Uh, Matthew chapter 12. And uh, we started this passage last week. We're really looking at Matthew 1, 12, 1 through 14. But um, we're, uh, because of different things going on, I kind of split the two sermons up. And, and this is a, a slightly shorter passage than last week. So um, uh, we're going to look into it and just kind of see what all it says. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse, we're going, just going to read verses 9 through 14. And uh, I would invite you to read this together with me aloud from the board as we, uh, as we read the passage. This is the word of the Lord. And he went on from there and entered into their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. There's, a, there's an old story about a pastor who went to go visit a farmer one day, and, and as he went there and tried to share the gospel with him, the farmer said, you know, pastor, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a wicked man. I was a wicked man, and though the Lord, uh, I believe the Lord has saved me, I just believe that there are things I've done that uh, just simply cannot be forgiven. There's things in my life that uh, just cannot be taken away, and the pastor wanting to give him kind of an object lesson. He says, well, I want you to do something for me. I want you to take uh, a hammer and a bunch of nails, and I want you to go to the doorstep, to the door frame of, of your barn, and I want you to hammer some of those nails into the barn. And so the farmer says, okay. And so he, he goes out, and he takes hammer and some nails, and he hammers about five or six nails into the door frame of the barn, and so the pastor comes next week, he says, uh, he says why did you have me nail, nail those nails into the door frame? He says, well, let's go out there together. And so they go out there together. And he says, I want you to take out every single one of those nails. And so he took out every single one of them. And he says, you know, that's exactly what Jesus has done for you. All of those sin and all that iniquity that you've done that had nailed themselves into your heart, the Lord has removed them from you and they are no longer there. And the farmer said, well, pastor, that's true, but the holes are still there. And I don't know if, if you feel like that sometimes, that the nails may be gone, the sin may be forgiven, but the holes are still there. You still feel the guilt. You still feel the shame. You still feel the embarrassment. When your life has been punctured by nails, sometimes it is hard to rest when the holes are still there, isn't it? How I many of you guys have ever, uh, in fact, sometimes when you step on a nail, you guys ever stepped on a nail before? Maybe a thumbtack or something? One in our family stepped on a thumbtack this week. That's why I'm throwing that out. 
But you know, the fact of the matter is sometimes it's actually more painful to take it out when it's not there than it is just to leave it in. It just kind of seems that way, doesn't it? And so, so the holes leave an emptiness there. And in order to address it, you can't merely take out the nail. You also have to clean the wound. You also have to fill the wound. And so my hope this morning is we are looking at this text and looking at it in comparison and, and with the text that came before it. Remember, we are talking about finding rest in Christ. We are finding rest in him, that he is the source of true, genuine rest. And we saw last week that Matthew's readers might have had a misunderstanding. They might not have really put it together what it means to rest in Christ. And so what we're doing this morning is my hope is that we will truly know what it means to rest in him. And so last week, we, we kind of took out the nails. We, we said that to rest in Christ means to find mercy. It means to find mercy. When we come to Christ and rest, we find that he gives us mercy, that the Lord desires mercy and not sacrifice. And so the Lord has given us Christ. All of the sacrifices, all of the types, everything that he did was pointing to Christ, that we will find ultimate mercy and that the goal of the Old Testament is not to give us a religious system, but to find mercy from God, ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ, because he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. He is, he is truly the Lord of over the Sabbath. He is truly the Lord over the Sabbath. And so, so last week, we took out the nails to find Christ, to rest in Christ, means to take the nails out. It means to find mercy. But this morning, we're going to see that to rest in Christ means to find healing. It means to find healing. Whereas we took the nails out when we found his mercy, now we place the nails in, excuse me, we, we dress the wound by addressing healing Beloved, salvation is not merely forgiveness of sin. You know, some people think that sometimes. They think that salvation is really nothing more than I'm a pretty good person and I need God's forgiveness for when I do wrong. So, so when I come into salvation, all I, all I need really is just that forgiveness of sin. I'm a pretty good guy. I can pretty much keep on doing what I'm doing. But when I mess up, God is there to forgive me, that's what salvation is. Beloved, salvation is so much more than merely forgiveness of sin. I mean, think about it for a moment. What, what happens if all we have is forgiveness of sin? Where, where does that bring us? It just brings us back to neutral. And how long is it gonna take before we sin again? Not very long, right? And we're back right where we started. See, salvation does not merely forgive sin. It also provides us with the very righteousness of Christ placed on our account. So it takes away our sin, but it also places us in Christ to where we have wisdom and, and righteousness and holiness through him. 
And so as we saw last week, we must come to Christ as our true source of rest. And what that means is, is that to come to Christ means to find healing. We saw the first controversy in a grain field, and now this controversy is gonna take place at a gathering. It's gonna take place in a synagogue, really on the Pharisees' turf. He says here that he went on from there, and that's, that's, a, that's in relationship to the text above. So Matthew wants us to kind of understand this text in connection with the other. He says he went on from there, and he entered into a synagogue, and there was a man there with a withered hand. Now, I want you, to, want you to stop right there for a moment and let's look at this. Now, he says from there, he's, he wants us to understand that Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath. He just said that in verse, in verse eight. Christ is the Lord over the Sabbath and now he's going to do something. He's going to provide something that is going to prove that. And so he walks into this synagogue and according to Luke chapter six, verse six, he, he's actually teaching in the synagogue. So he's, so he's there at the front, he's sat down, and he is teaching certain people. And there's a man there with a withered hand. Now, we don't know the cause of it. Uh, there's speculation as to what disease it might have been. But essentially, the word means to dry up. It, his hand is shriveled up, it's, it's shrunken, it's immovable. It's not considered an unclean disease. And so he is able to be in the synagogue. Uh, however, this thing would have made his life very difficult. Uh, he's able to do work, but he would have been severely handicapped, uh, pressed down to one hand doing all the work, one arm doing all the work. And so, and as Jesus is teaching and as he's preaching, the, the Pharisees look at this man and they see his withered hand and they ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath. Now, the first question is, why do they even have to ask this? You see that they did want to accuse him, and so we, we see the motives there. But believe it or not, this was actually a hotly debated topic during the day. In fact, we've got uh, different passages from what's called the Mishnah, where they where they debate all of this, what is allowed to do for healing and what is not. And, and there's all kinds of rules that they followed and, and stuff like that. But the general consensus is, is that if someone's life was in immediate danger, then you could save that person on the Sabbath. Now, to me, that's kind of like you need a rule for that. I mean, that's kind of like uh, the criminal code in Chicago, like chapter 21 is murder. It's like, really? There were 20 chapters before that, before you thought, hmm, murder should totally be in there. And so that should totally be illegal, you know? And so it just seems like, why did you even have to debate this? But they did. They did have to debate this. And most people agreed that his life, if it was in immediate danger, they could heal. But this man's life wasn't. This man's life was pretty much pretty much normal, except for the fact that he wasn't able to use one hand. And so why are they doing this? The fact of the matter is that they don't care about the man. They don't care about the disease. They don't care about the hardship. They're doing all of this for one reason and one reason only, so that they might accuse Christ. Essentially, the man with the withered hand is really nothing more than a pawn in their game, nothing more than a prop 
and the theater that they're trying to put on in front of the people so that they can look good in front of the people and, and Christ can be accused. Why in the world would they do this? Why are they using a guy to, to trap Jesus? Well, you may remember last week that, that the Pharisees, they defined holiness all about what they didn't do. In fact, the name Pharisee actually means the separated ones. And so they were separated from, from this sin and that sin and this process and that culture and this practice and, and all of that stuff. They were the separated ones and they defined holiness by what they did not do. And so every Sabbath was kind of their Super Bowl season because there were a lot of things you weren't supposed to do on Sabbath. And the Pharisees prided themselves in their ability to be able to not do those things. And beloved, when you define your holiness by what you don't do, then there's always going to cause problems. Always gonna cause problems. When your holiness is defined by how you are not like them, fill in the blank, whether it's these sinners over here or those people over here or this political party or, or that group of, of whatever, if your holiness is defined by your not being like them, then it's going to cause problems. In fact, I can't help but to think of the church of Laodicea, very famous church for not for what they got right, but for what they got wrong. In fact, as far as I can tell, they didn't get much of anything right. In Revelation chapter three, beginning in verse 14, he says, uh, you know, you are neither hot, you are neither cold, but you are lukewarm. I'd rather you be one or the other, but because you're lukewarm, I'm gonna vomit you out of my mouth. And, you know, sometimes people can be a little confused about what that means. That's actually local imagery because, because Laodicea was kind of found in a valley and there were two cities that were kind of higher elevation from them. One was, uh, one was Hierapolis, and you had these, uh, uh, these uh, hot springs that would flow down, lots of minerals, lots of sulfuric uh, water that uh, they would go there for healing. And, and you had Ephesus that was up in the mountains, and, and those water, that water would come down, and it was really cold. Well, it would, it would kind of merge and come, came together in Laodicea. And uh, the water in Laodicea was nasty. In fact, to this day, you can see the old aqueducts where they tried to bring in water from somewhere else because their natural water was so bad. And what Jesus is saying there is that you are neither good for healing, you are not good for a refreshing drink, you are lukewarm, you are sulfuric, you are nasty to the taste. And I will vomit you out. You know, and this happens to many churches. They're not good for healing. They're not good for a fresh, refreshing drink of water. They're lukewarm. They're lukewarm. I remember uh, when I first went to Denver, there were a couple of Mormon missionaries that me and the pastor ran into in the parking lot of a Safeway. And we had a good uh, two-hour conversation with them. We sat there right in the parking lot. And, and right before I left college, I had actually studied a lot up on the cults. It was just kind of a little fascination of mine. And, and so I was ready for them. And 
we started this conversation. They gave us this little testimony and they said, you know, uh, uh, pay attention to the burning of the bosom that you feel when we read this testimony and all that nonsense. And, and uh, guys, I destroyed them. I destroyed them. I was ready for them. Every, every time they mentioned Melchizedek priesthood, boy, I was ready. Hebrews 7, here we go. I was ready for everything. Everything they told me, I had a counter for it. And they walked off like little whip puppies. And I, I just had this weird feeling. I, you would have thought that I'd be happy about that, but I really wasn't. And for a couple of days, it just really bothered me. I mean, the pastor was bragging all about me. He bragged about me to the whole church. But I remember thinking, why don't I feel right about this? And it finally hit me one day when it occurred to me that I lost the souls for the sake of winning the argument. And beloved, if we're not careful in the church, we can do that. We can, we can forsake the souls. We can lose the souls for the sake of winning the cultural argument. Now, I'm not saying don't have the cultural argument. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is don't get so wrapped up in fighting the cause that we forget to minister to the ones who are caught and enslaved by the sin. Don't make them our enemy. Don't make the mission field the battlefield, as Dr. Holland likes to say so much, one of my professors. I'm not saying don't fight the cause. But what I am saying is that just like these Pharisees, they, they looked at a man with a withered hand and they saw an opportunity to score religious points. Don't do that. Jesus saw a man with a withered hand and he saw a man with a withered hand. A man who had hardship, a man who was suffering, and a man who needed healing. And that's how we must see people. When holiness is when we are not like them, this is often what happens. And we have to be very careful. We're no longer interested in filling holes. We're only interested in reminding them that the holes are there. In my experience, most people with holes in their life don't have to be reminded. It's a constant, constant nagging in their hearts. Beloved, we need to be about healing. We need to be about providing Christ healing to those who are caught in sin. Fight the argument, yes. Fight the cause, yes. But don't get so wrapped up in fighting the cause that we forget about the ones who are caught and enslaved by the sin. Please don't get too involved in that. And so how does Jesus respond in verses 11 through 13? He turns the question back on them. He says to them, which one of you has a sheep if it falls into the pit on the Sabbath? Now, now stop right there for a minute because I want you to see a couple of things that he's doing in this question. He says, which man among you? Notice what he's doing. He's not, he's not bringing this to necessarily an, a logical or legal argument, but what he's doing is he's turning the question back on them and saying, which one among you? It's almost like a challenge. It's almost like he's asking them, what kind of people are you? What sort of people are you? He's incredulous that they even had to ask about this. 
he's he's amazed at how far their biblical interpretation had fallen and how bad it had become. Because like I said, this was actually a debated topic. Are you allowed to practice medicine on the Sabbath? Are you allowed to heal on the Sabbath? And and some of the rules and regulations regarding this, let me just give you a couple. For one, uh, you could not mix medicine on the Sabbath. So even if it involved saving someone's life, if they needed medicine and it wasn't already mixed, you couldn't do it because that involved work. You couldn't tie a bandage You couldn't uh, reset a bone. A bone could always be reset the next day. You cannot induce vomiting because that's work. And there was even debate on what constituted life-threatening illness. In fact, if it wasn't an obvious illness, if it was something internal that was causing them uh, to be sick or something like that, you were allowed to try to give them medicine again if it was already mixed. But once you determined that this was not a life-threatening illness, you had to stop. And so all of these different kinds of debates are going on. And Jesus is saying, what kind of people are you? What sort of people are you? And if you have one sheep that has fallen into a hole, would you not grab it and lift it out? Most of our translations do us a a tad disservice here because he says here, which one of you who has a sheep? He might wanna mark that because the literal translation is which one of you have, if you have one sheep? In other words, we're not, we're not talking about a potential rich farmer who has many sheep, and if one of them happens to fall on the Sabbath into a hole, then, then he can wait because he's got other sheep in the flock that he can depend on, and really, if a, a loss of one sheep to a rich farmer, that's really not a big deal. But that's not the kind of person that Jesus is pointing to here. He's saying, if you have one sheep, in other words, if you are a poor farmer, who only has one sheep for your income, for your livelihood, and that sheep falls into a hole. In other words, this could potentially be catastrophic loss to this person. Which kind of makes me wonder, you know how sometimes people will, will talk to you, but they're talking in a way that's really for the benefit of everyone else around you ever, you ever done that before? Am I the only sinner in the room? Okay. So, uh, so I, I really wonder if that's really what Jesus is doing here. As if he's, he's talking to the Pharisees, that much is clear by the text, but he's actually doing it for the benefit of people around. Most of the people in the synagogue are poor farmers, are poor fishermen. And Jesus is saying, if you have one sheep, if the one sheep you have falls into a hole, are you not gonna dig it out even if it is on the Sabbath? And of course, the obvious answer is, of course you are. Because the loss of that sheep would be immeasurable loss, catastrophic loss. And how much more immeasurable is the loss of a soul? How much more immeasurable, catastrophic loss is the loss of a person? That's what he says here. 
says, in other words, the sheep has immense value to the owner. How much more value is every single one of you to the Lord? How much of more value is a person than a sheep? If the loss of that sheep would represent catastrophic, immeasurable loss, then how much more immeasurable is the loss of a person who dies and goes to hell? How much more loss? You know, Jesus says this a couple of times. In fact, in the scriptures, God talks about this. He says in Ezekiel 33, 11, he says, so say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Do you understand? God takes no pleasure in the death of those who are against him. Listen to Christ cry over Jerusalem. Look what he says. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Can you just hear the anguish? Can you hear the, the anguish of his soul crying over an entire city, a city that he chose, a city that he loved. Luke chapter 15, verse 10, the parable of the, of the lost ones, the parable of the gracious father, he says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Beloved, if a sheep is so immeasurable, of such immeasurable value that, that the, law, the potential loss of it would cause you to break the Sabbath, then how much more valuable is the loss of a soul? How much more immeasurable? Oh, how Christ must weep over those who die without him. Oh, how Christ, oh, how God must long for those to come to him. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? That's what the Sabbath is about. Not only is it lawful, that's why it was there. It's about finding rest for your soul. It's about mercy and healing. It's about finding that healing. I don't know about you, but until the wound is the object is removed and the wound is filled. That's that you really can't rest if you have a hole in your body, can you? It has to be addressed. It has to be it has to be it has to be fixed. In the same way, beloved, our soul cannot rest until we find both forgiveness and healing from Christ. Now I want you to notice he doesn't just leave it to a theological debate. Look what he does in verse 13. He's not only gonna say, he's not even gonna show and say that he's the Lord of the Sabbath, but now he's gonna demonstrate it very vividly. He simply tells the man, stretch out your hand, which I've always found this interesting because he's telling the man to do the one thing he can't do, right? 
He's telling the man to do the one thing. If he could stretch out his hand, then he would have done it a long time ago, but he can't do it. That's the whole point. Jesus says, stretch out your hand. And in an act of enabling grace, the man is able to do so. What he could not do on his own, now by the grace of Jesus Christ, he is able to do so and more because he who gives the grace gets the glory. That's right. That's the whole point. It's that whole act of enabling grace that Christ tells him, and it's healed so much so that it's restored healthy just like the other. Imagine the, the, the muscular loss that must have been from the lack of use of that arm. Imagine how the, the bones were wrinkled and, and maybe even twisted out of joint and all that. All of that is repaired instantly, and it's just like the other hand, completely restored. He doesn't offer him merely a theological position. He doesn't leave this in a mere abstract debate. He doesn't, he doesn't resolve this simply in a legal matter. He goes to the man and he offers him healing. Beloved, we, as our, as our scripture reading says, we don't, we don't get wrapped up over quarrels and, and babbling words and stuff like that. Don't leave our faith in the field of theological debate and abstract uh, conversation we are about the healing of souls. We are about the, the finding of people. We are about those who need to be healed. It's an amazing picture of the gospel that Christ is the source of true rest, not just to find mercy for forgiveness of sins, but also to find restoration into a right relationship with God. In fact, Philippians 3, 9, here's what he says, that I may be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see, if it were only forgiveness, we would only be at neutral, but Christ gives us his own righteousness so that what is taken away, our sin is refilled, is filled up by his righteousness. And when God, look, the Father, looks at us, he sees the very righteousness of Jesus Christ on our account. He doesn't just remove the nails of our sin, but he refills the holes with his own righteousness, his own holiness, his own power, and his own wisdom. We have all of that in Christ, a true healing. You don't have to feel that shame anymore. You don't have to live in that guilt anymore. You don't have to do any of that. We, beloved, we, here's what we do. We are interpreters by nature. And when we look at those holes, the memories, the past, and all the things we use to prosecute ourselves, we look at all those things and we use those to say, this is why I am, I am this or I am that. You don't just remember your past. You, you interpret it and you use it to prosecute yourself. If anyone could have done that, Paul could have. But look what he does. And in fact, I want you to turn here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want you to see what he does here. In 1 Corinthians 15, in verses eight through 10, he is talking about those who saw 
the resurrected Christ. And he says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. Paul never forgot what he did prior to Christ. Paul, Paul brings it up often. He, he never forgot that. He never, he, he, he never let that go and, and acted like that was nothing and pretended that it didn't happen. But look what he goes on to say. Look what he did do with it. He says in verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. You see, Paul, look, he remembers everything he did prior to Christ, but he reinterprets them based upon the grace of God. There's now a new story that redefines all of those things. And whereas before that was the persecution that he caused upon God's people, now those very things he did are the very things that God used to bring him to the gospel. And there's a, there's a holy reinterpretation of his past. These are the very things that Christ used to show him his need for the gospel and bring him to himself. He does better than taking them away. He doesn't remove your past, beloved. He does better. He redeems it. He redeems it for his glory and for your good. Christ has redeemed us. He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. And he placed his own righteousness on our account so that we live now on his credit, his holiness, and his grace toward us. And there is an unlimited supply. So beloved, if you're gonna rest in Christ, rest in him. He's the source of all of our true rest. And when we come to rest in Christ, you do so to find mercy and healing. Christ not only removes the nails of your sin with his mercy, but praise God, he fills the holes left behind with his healing. And so what does it mean to rest in Christ? Let me just give you a few things real quick. Number one, to rest in Christ means that we cease from all attempts to be okay without him. It means we stop all attempts to be righteous, to be justified, to be whole, to be filled. Anything that we look for to provide us with all that we need we cease all of that that we try to do without him. Hebrews chapter four, verse 10, we've, we've come to that passage a lot during this text, but I'll just read it again. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So to rest in Christ means to cease all attempts to be okay without him to acknowledge our sin before God and throw ourselves at his mercy. Number two, to rest means to have complete faith and confidence in his promises. It means to have complete faith and confidence 
and his promises. I think of uh, Psalm 37 in verse seven, where it says, be still before Yahweh and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourselves over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. In other words, rest in Yahweh and wait on him. Don't fret about all the bad things that are happening in the world. Place your complete trust and your complete faith that God is going to carry out his promises to you, no matter how bad things may seem. Know that all promises in Christ are yes and find their yes in him. Number three, to rest means to pursue Christ when we are worried Scared, afraid, tired. You can throw angry in there. You can throw just about any emotion you want in there. Philippians 4, 6. Philippians 4, 6 says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. To rest in Christ means to pursue him. Stop running after other things to numb ourselves or comfort ourselves when we're distressed. Run to Christ for comfort, casting your cares on him, for he cares for you. So stop running to the things and stop doing the things that, that we've learned to do to numb the pain and to numb and distract ourselves from the hardship. Run to Christ instead. Fall upon him. Find your comfort in him. And then finally, it means to set your minds on things above, not on things below. Colossians chapter three simply says, set your minds on the things that are above and not on the things of the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Set your mind where you are. Set your mind on the things above and not on the things below. If all you can see is what's happening in the here and now, and that's all you set your mind on, if that's all you focus on, you'll never have rest. You'll never have peace. But if you set your mind on things above, the truths of God's word, the, the, the reality of who he is, the, the reality of who God is and his promises to you and all that he has done for you, beloved, that is where you find joy unspeakable. The peace that passes all understanding, that's where you find it. All of Israel looked out and saw how big a giant was. And yet one little boy went out and he saw not how big the giant was. He went out and he saw how big God is. Beloved, set your mind on things above and not on the things of the earth. And if you're here this morning and you don't, have that ability, you don't know Christ as your Savior, I would love to spend some time to talk with you, to tell you how Christ, fully man, fully God, because he loved us, he came, he lived a life of perfect righteousness before God, and how he died on the cross, even though he didn't deserve it, he died on the cross for his own wrath, 
to cover our sins. And because that was enough, he rose on the third day. Was seen by many people who, several of whom wrote down the testimony for us in the scriptures. And he's now ascended to the right hand of the Father and he is offering himself to you as a savior from your sin. And one day he will return with his kingdom for his glory. And at that time, he will rule over the earth with righteousness and grace and peace the way it was meant to be. If you wanna be a part of that kingdom, you must come to Christ in faith alone. We would love to share with you how you can do that. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for everything you have done for us. Lord, I pray that these principles are resonating even now in the hearts of your people. I pray that they are ruminating over them. They are reflecting on them. And I pray even now we're finding rest in you. Lord, if there's one here who has not found their rest in Christ, I pray today would be the day that you draw them to yourself. Lord, may you be glorified. What a wonderful day it would be for someone to come to know you. Maybe there's one in here that even though they know, they know the promises, even though they know Christ, even though they've been saved, and yet they have found themselves chasing after other loves. Maybe they've been chasing after things to, to numb themselves or to distract themselves from immeasurable pain. They know they've been forgiven, but they don't feel like they've had the healing that you offer. Lord, I pray that you would give them peace. You would comfort them to know that you are not a God who constantly accuses us. But Lord, you are a gracious Lord who has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. And Father, may they feel that comfort this morning. Whatever the needs are, I pray that you will do your work among us in our hearts. Let's stand together. We're gonna sing uh, Change My Heart, O oh God. Just ask you to bow your heads for just a moment just to reflect on what we have talked about. And if you have come to Christ for rest, Maybe you want to thank him for that. Maybe you want to thank him for his mercy and healing in your life. But if you're here and you don't know that, we would love to talk to you.